Have you ever been in love? Yeah. I can't with this. I can't with this. I cannot get mushy-gushy. Not romantically. Yes. I've never been in love, um, but it looks cute from afar. <laughs> what does love feel like? Oh, God. Um, <laughs> ask someone else. No. <laughs> it feels like it's taking up your entire world and, like, everything... <laughs> Like, your entire world just revolves around that person. It's, like, the best thing, but also the worst thing. Yeah, like, soft touches, like, you know, like, a head on the shoulder. Just in those little, little, like, private moments. Like, someone, someone out there is gonna have my back, and I feel like knowing who those people are and, like, having them, like, that's what love feels like. I think it's all about, like, love languages, right? Like, there's different love languages. You, like, find different love through different ways. My love languages are words of affirmation and a skosh of, like, gift-giving. If you're gonna find love somewhere on campus, where will it be? I don't know. It would have to be in a library or something. Norbox, basement of a fraternity. No. Um, <laughs> if me personally, like, we're gonna find love on this campus, it'd probably be at SPAC, to be honest. I think periodicals of Main Library, and I'll be sitting there, and someone's gonna be taking a nap on one of the cozy chairs, and then their eyes are gonna snap open when their alarm goes off from their power nap, and our eyes will meet, and I'll see, like, the tired exhaustion, like, right there, and then we'll, like, bond, because I'll have the same tired exhaustion in my eyes, and then that's where our love story will begin. Hey Nine Lives listeners, I'm Carly Rubin, and I'll be your host as we take a deep dive into the most frightening, perplexing, and at times, sweetest of topics, love. At Nine Lives, we encounter love a lot in our stories. We've covered it in its most triumphant forms, all the way to awkward failed attempts at it, but we've never quite approached the subject head-on. That's why for Valentine's Day this year, as a token of love from all of us, we're giving you the honest, raw, and unnervingly accurate Northwestern lowdown on love. To start off the episode, Elizabeth and I sat down with a local expert on the topic. If you're a Northwestern student listening, you might be trudging through your last batch of midterm exams this week. We're all constantly working down a laundry list of papers to write, tests to study for, and projects to complete. But what if a task for one of your classes was to go on a date? For students in Northwestern's infamous Marriage 101 class, one of the quarter's assignments is just that. And there's a list the length of your arm of the rules for this date. And it just is a chance to practice what's harder and harder in the, in the age we're living in now, where we all have phones, practicing presence, like just being present, putting our phones away and being really like old school present and listening to each other and working on slowing down and, and, and showing up and being curious and following curiosity. So those that was Dr. Alexandra Solomon, the professor of Marriage 101, a course that focuses on developing healthy and loving relationships with others and with yourself. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist by training, and in fact, I've been at Northwestern since my first year of my doctoral program and was sort of born and raised here at Northwestern, and, um, and I work at the Family Institute at Northwestern where I see clients. Dr. Solomon's work has been featured in major publications such as The Atlantic and The New York Times. And earlier this month, she came out with a brand new book about sexuality and empowerment called Taking Sexy Back. Dr. Solomon's course is notoriously hard to get into, but don't worry. We sat down with her to get the scoop on the most important lessons she teaches in her class. The general sort of like central theme of my work is helping people understand who they are 
so that they can create intimate partnerships that are really guided by self-awareness and integrity and consciousness and curiosity. So kind of this, like the self in love, like helping people understand their relationship to relationships. In the Marriage 101 course, the so students are sitting, there's a hundred students and they have vastly different relationships to love, vastly different relationship histories, vastly different belief systems, desires, sort of presentations, like how they show up in the classroom. What I really value doing with my students is basically taking them on a 10 week journey into who they are and how did they come to be the way they are and what are the pieces of themselves that they really want to like cultivate and bring forward and nourish and what are the pieces that don't really serve them that are beliefs that are like inhibiting or fear-based or shame-based um, what are the experiences that have like led them to shrink or or be cynical or afraid about intimate partnership and then and then how might they push back transform and kind of heal we start out by asking Dr. Solomon about one of the major pillars of her first book and her class, a process of growth that she calls relational self-awareness. That kind of like ongoing practice of checking in with yourself and, and being curious and compassionate about what your intimate partnership is stirring up in you. And to me, that is really like it has to be the foundation of an intimate partnership because we no longer, you know, I think years ago, intimate partnership was very much like a role-to-role arrangement. And I'm going to use heterosexual language because that really was the only kind of language or the only kind of relationship that would have been we would have seen, which is that it was a role-bound agreement, right? He is the provider and she is the caregiver. And we are transforming that model. We're now in the kinds of intimate partnerships we want are much more soul-to-soul. So the central principle has to be growth and it has to be I'm willing to hear how you're growing, even if it makes me uncomfortable. And even if what I want to say to you is, but wait, you said you were this, and now you're saying you're this plus also this. So that has to be the couples who are able to survive any transition, whether it's a transition to, from college to life after college, whether it's a transition from engagement to marriage, transition to parenthood, all those trans, like life is going to keep changing who we are. And so then the relationship has to be able to like expand to include a new truth or an unfolding truth. Relationships are almost always messy, but what is it about falling in love that's so challenging for all of us? Why aren't we hardwired to navigate partnerships with ease and expertise? Dr. Solomon explains. The thing that the thing that's unavoidable is that falling in love with somebody or building a relationship with somebody is going to put you face to face with your wounds. Whatever challenges were um, present for you when you were little, like the ways in which your parents were either too much or not enough, the way that early experiences of disappointment, abandonment, um, control, dependence, whatever those issues were are going to get reawakened. And so that's what makes it hard is you can't, you can't get around the reawakening of trauma. And what's really beautiful is that because we oftentimes, our wounds are relational wounds, we were hurt by people we needed, the healing is relational. So then an intimate partnership can rewound us, but it also can heal us. We can probably all agree that most college students are looking for love in some form. But tying the knot doesn't seem to be as big of a priority for our generation as it was for our parents. We wanted to hear Dr. Solomon's take on the future of marriage and why she believes it's an institution worth keeping around. 
What I love so much about my, like, well, first of all, it's it's really wild for me because when I started teaching Marriage 101, I was way, way, way closer to my students' age. Like, I was basically a few years older than the students I was teaching. And now I'm basically the age of my students' parents. But what I love about, what I really love and admire about the generation of students that I get to teach now is even when they occupy identities of privilege, they are fierce about their allyship. Fierce. So I think sometimes the reactivity about marriage is marriage has been an institution of harm. It has been an institution of exclusion. It has been an institution that has reinforced hierarchies and privilege and power and, and marginalization. So I really admire this like questioning of the institution of marriage. And I think sometimes the pushback against it is about that. Like I don't want to participate in something that has done harm, but I want to invite this next generation to not like throw the baby out with the bathwater like there. So then keep evolving marriage like, because the, the thing I do know to be true is that in order for couples to do the really hard thing about the amount of vulnerability that you need in order to really, really love, there has to be like a guardrail of some kind. Like if I'm going to bare my soul to you, I need to know that you are not going to turn around and head out the door. So there needs to be some kind of like relationship of constancy that you've been there you are there you're going to be there because otherwise it's too hard to be vulnerable and if we're not going to be vulnerable we're not going to feel connected and if we're not going to feel connected then the sex is going to suck and there's not going to be a whole lot of richness so there needs to be some kind of boundary and marriage does provide that boundary and as long as we can ensure that it is chosen that it is inclusive um that it doesn't do harm then i think we can keep cultivating marriage as an institution. Dr. Solomon is a huge proponent of young love. She wants to make sure that we take relationships seriously, regardless of our age, even if the messages we've received from the media or our upbringings have told us otherwise. Last year, one of our honors students' thesis, I was one of her readers, and she took, she found the most sort of um, evolved, progressive sex ed curricula, and she basically did like a content analysis, and she coded for themes of pleasure and different kinds of variables. And one of the findings that she hadn't gone in thinking she would find was how written into the curricula was this idea that young love is silly and that you really aren't, you really don't know what you want and you aren't mature enough to know what you want. And that's so sad to me that that is something that is directly taught to young people. So some of it is, I think, just pushing back on that, just being aware. You've been told that you don't have any business making choices right now about your future in love career yes but in love that's been a message message has been given to you certainly implicitly but potentially even explicitly maybe your family has said career first then love you've gotten these messages and so just knowing it's a set, knowing that it's a set of messages then at least gives a bit of space and a bit of maneuverability then to pause and check in with yourself and check in with what you feel. She also thinks it's important that we prioritize filling in our knowledge base around relationships, sex, and intimacy. I think when I talk about sex in the Marriage 101 class or in conversations with my students, the big thing I want to say, and sex is like a really big umbrella of just erotic behaviors. It's not, I think we have, we falsely equate sex with penetrative sex and that's really limiting and heteronormative and problematic in all kinds of ways. But in terms of sex, I think that being on a college campus, it's a, a really important time for, I want my students to be viewing themselves as lifelong learners and to basically probably go from the assumption that the sex ed you got in your school or in your 
religious institution in your family probably wasn't enough. A lot of families got a message, just don't, it's bad, it's sinful, it's dirty, it's wrong, it's dangerous. And so I think that those college years can be a time to really question what you were raised with and how your information base, your knowledge base around the erotic needs to be updated, rounded out, filled in. And and how do I get to a place where I really feel comfortable that I deserve sexual experiences that are pleasurable for me, that feel good to me, that feel nourishing to me, that that's a really worthwhile question. We asked Dr. Solomon what she thinks Northwestern students in particular struggle with in the areas of love and relationships. Her advice? We all need to focus a little more on just being. Especially on a campus like ours, everyone who's here is exceptional. They probably grew up in families and in school systems where the part of themselves that was really being cultivated was their ambition, was who they are as a doer. And love is about a, being a beer, not a doer, right? So like that's just a part of, of my of Northwestern students that can be a bit like delayed, you know? It's just like this permission to feel pleasure, permission to relax, permission to, I think the women on campus, permission to just really be like in a sort of feminine space of caring. Like I think there's such a danger of like, okay, if I'm taking care of somebody else, am I still ambitious? Like what happens to that part of me? I think that can be really confronting. I see this, most, all of my students basically are graduating seniors. And so oftentimes they've done a really inconvenient thing, which is fall in love with somebody as they're about to head off of campus. And there's this tension of like, what do I do? I'm supposed to be heading here for this really amazing opportunity, but I'm so pulled to be here because I love this person and who I get to be in this relationship is like incredible. And if they come to office hours to talk to me about it, they know darn well what I'm going to say, <laughs> you know, be like, you are going to have a really rich career. It's going to take you all kinds of places and all kinds of experiences. And I'm always like the voice that's like, go for love. Like, don't be, a, you know, don't be ashamed of it. Dr. Solomon explains that entering into relationships can challenge us to think more deeply about individuality as we grapple with what she calls the line between me and we. The theme in some ways is no different than the couples I sit with who've been married for 20 years, which is how do I hold on to togetherness versus aloneness? How do I love you and not lose me? Like that's what college students, I see college students struggling with. Like they are oftentimes it's like I was single I hated being single. I wanted a relationship. Now I'm in a relationship and I worry all the time about what I'm missing out on and is this the right person and is there enough here to pursue it? And I just am like, well, lovely one, you are going to be asking those same questions when you're 40 in different ways. But when you boil it down, it's a question about where is the line between me and we, togetherness, aloneness, dependence and independence. And Solomon's biggest tip for Wildcats, try to be nice to yourself. I think that a really common challenge for Northwestern students is around self-compassion. So an easy tip is to notice how you talk to yourself. And so self-compassion is about talking to ourselves the way we would talk to a very good friend. The things we often say to ourselves are things we wouldn't dream of saying to somebody that we love and care about. And so self-compassion, I have to be able to be compassionate with myself in order to have a healthy, intimate relationship because I can't, it's really hard to be nicer to you than I am to me. After talking with Dr. Solomon, we wanted to sit down with a real Northwestern couple and see how they found love on campus. Here's Emily Coffey and Allegra Calls, two seniors who've been together since freshman year.
so this is kind of a victory story for me. Like, it was a long time coming over, like, six months, the course of six months. Um, <laughs> it's true. Don't roll your eyes. Um, <laughs> so Allegra and I met in October, on October 4th, 5th? 7th. Oh, 7th. No, well, the oh. first time we had auditions, it was October Oh, yeah, October 4th. 4th. Yeah. Uh, but we met October 7th. Um, we were auditioning for Boom Shaka. Um, and it was, like, that first night when we had found out we were in the group. We were at Cheesy's all together with the whole cast. Um, and Allegra and I walked home together back to Bob. Um, and we exchanged all the, like, biographical information, you know, major, hometown, everything like that. Um, and it was kind of, like, that night, but also just the few days after. Like, there was just really clearly like an instant connection between us um which is how someone else described it not (laughs) just me um but there really was this like instant connection like we were just instantly friends um whenever boom shaka would hang out we would like text each other to make sure that we were both going before we went so we just like really did everything together and we got to know each other and like by thanksgiving break um, Allegra had failed to pack for her flight home, which is like very classic of Allegra. She'd just taken an orgo midterm or something. Failed is uh, such an aggressive. Yeah. <laughs> she had not she had not packed. <laughs> um and so we stayed up all night packing and then just like hanging out and waiting for her flight in the morning. And so then kind of by the time winter break happened, like by the end of fall quarter, we were like really attached. I was like deeply obsessed already. <laughs> um and we were just, I don't know, just, like, the best of friends. Like, texted every day, saw each other every day. And then we went home for winter break. I remember there was, like, a lot of anxiety about when I got to talk to her and, like, what we would talk about. And we had all these, like, deep conversations about, like, what we loved and what we hated and about our exes and all that stuff. <laughs> just, like, best friends at that point. And it was just so clear. And when we came back, and we used to do this fun thing uh, every, almost every single night, I think, where I would walk down from the second floor of Bob on the McCulloch side, to uh, the Virgin Vault, where Allegra lived, and I would, like, walk downstairs, and we'd sit in the hallway and just, like, talk about our days or just talk about anything for, like, an hour, and then I'd walk back upstairs and go to bed. We were sitting in the hallway, and we were talking, and I said goodnight, and I went upstairs, and then I just kind of had this moment where I was, like, I really need to tell her. Like, it felt like it was just, like, weighing on me, um and my roommate had kind of been making fun of me she's like if you don't tell her I will and my best friend from home had been sending me pictures of chickens every day being like you're being a chicken (laughs) um (laughs) which is kind of aggressive but uh so I just texted Allegra and I was like wait like can I come back downstairs like I need to tell you something and she was like yeah of course and I was like okay coming down and I think the way I worded it was it's becoming increasingly difficult not to have a crush on you which is very (laughs) <laughs> roundabout way yeah. to say I have a crush on you um and Allegra was great about it she asked if I was okay which I she did. she w- likes to make clear and then she said that we could still be friends and it was it was like kind of it kind of sucked to hear that but at the same time like I wasn't really ready to date anyone or like a woman specifically and I was like kind of nervous and I was like oh yeah that's what I want and then we really were we were best friends again like as if nothing had happened there were some things we would make jokes about there were a lot of moments where Allegra perhaps was a little more than friendly mm-hmm. at some points oh um and we but we really like just got right back into it getting to know each other cuddling and all that That's stuff embarrassing. I know <laughs> um and just like it was really true friendship and then there's this one night winter quarter where I went to a pike formal and <laughs> I got a little bit too drunk and I I came home and 
I asked Allegra to like wait in my room for me and then I like got home and I kissed her and she like got really upset about it which is fair because I had kissed her without her asking and we had kind of had these conversations prior to that kiss where I was like you know you have to have thought about it you must have thought about us being together and she had kind of admitted that she had but we obviously didn't need to do anything about it and she wasn't ready to do anything about it and then I kind of you know ruined that um and I felt really bad about it and we had this big fight just right at the end of winter quarter. And then I went home for finals week before spring break. And we had this plan where I was going to go home to California and then I was going to fly to New York City and meet her in New York and we were going to go on our spring break trip together with some of our friends. And so I went home for that week and then I flew to New York. And when I landed in New York, it was like nothing had happened. I mean, like something had happened, but we had talked enough about it. It was like everything was forgiven. We were just like immediately back to like being best friends again. And then we went on our spring break trip and it was the last night and we were playing this dare game that... like every round starts with a dare and then you get to opt into it if you want to participate in the dare um so we had this one dare where I had to play kiss chicken with um one of our friends Jaleel and I turned around to Allegra after I kissed him and I said I can't believe I kissed Jaleel before we made out on this trip and she said well we can make out later (laughs) and I was like excuse me (laughs) um I think I like paused for a moment and then I was like do you mean that and she just kind of shrugged and made this like face like I don't know um and I kind of turned around and was like all right and then like literally not two dares later we started the round with this dare like the queen of hearts and the queen of diamonds have to make out for as long as the jack of spades does a keg stand so we have all these cards and we opt into the (laughs) dare and then we both picked up our cards and I turned to Allegra and I was like they're face down yeah they're face down so you don't know them right away and I turned to Allegra and I was like it's gonna be us and she was like yeah I know and then we turned them over and it was us and we had to (laughs) make out for this game and uh we got to make out for this game (laughs) but I was so scared I was like shaking and I really don't remember the make out that much because I was so stressed and I remember making eye contact with one of our friends who like knew I had a crush on Allegra and she just looked scared for me (laughs) and I was very calm yeah Allegra was like so calm the calmest I've ever seen her um so then we made out and then we like finished the game we didn't really say anything about it and we went upstairs to go to bed and then as we got in bed I was like did you mean what you said and she was like did the shrug thing again I was like I don't know and then I kissed her and (laughs) I kissed her and we just kind of kissed for a while I mean kissed for like a while like two hours and (laughs) and then we went to bed and I remember like the moment I knew it was like good and like was gonna last was the next morning we woke up really early and we just like kissed good morning and it was kind of one of those moments where I was like why haven't we been doing this the entire time We got to talking about the New York Times 36 questions to lead to love. Here's Allegra on question number five. When did you last sing to yourself or to someone else? If you asked me the last time I sang with someone um, for the past three years, it would definitely always be Emily. Um, And that's definitely been unique for me uh, with our relationship. It's something that's sort of like threaded through our friendship and our relationship you know, I never grew up with uh, driving around with friends, like listening to music, singing along, different things like that. I grew up in a city. Um, I learned to drive a year and a half ago. So Emily definitely introduced that to me. And after we became friends, we started sharing songs. And the first big one was she showed me the song Better Man. And it was exactly the kind of song that I like. 
I knew that she understood me and what kind of music I liked, and we were both obsessed with it. And we would sing it to each other, even though we're both women. <laughs> but we, we were so infatuated with each other. And we really did think, you know, like through being friends that we were better people because of it. And then from there, you know, we made a playlist called Calls Me Coffee that we would add to over winter break from New York and California. And then starting winter quarter, it continued. That's when we became obsessed with the song Beware the Dog. Um... And we had like a little choreographed dance to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but for Beware the Dog, we would play it like during boom shaka rehearsals, during the breaks, or at the end of rehearsals, especially at the end of like a really hard rehearsal. We would blast it on the speakers and make everyone like listen and watch us like jump around and like dance and like get all of our stress out together by singing it together. And people were like, oh my god, these girls are crazy. <laughs> they're also like, oh my god, they're obsessed with each other. Yeah. <laughs> um, because we just always did that. And so, yeah, we just kept singing songs, kept thinking of new songs to be obsessed with that were like our song. Um, and then it came time for spring break, and I realized I started to like her. Um, and I'll never forget. <laughs> You're very excited. Mm-hmm. Um, we were driving back from getting groceries, just the two of us, for our friends, and the sun was setting. And the sunlight was streaming in right behind you. You were driving. And I was looking over at you and we were singing Beware the Dog and just a bunch of different songs. And it like looked like a music video with the sun shining through your hair and we were singing to each other. And I was just so in love <laughs> with you in that moment. It was so magical. She wouldn't have said it though. <laughs> I mean, no, I would not have said it. But it was, it was very magical. And so even after we started dating after that, um, we still find songs and we make them about each other, such as Hopelessly Devoted to You mm-hmm. from Greece. And then the beginning of sophomore year, you secretly learned the chords to one of our recent obsessions. Long time obsession. Long time oh, obsession. Make You Feel My Love by Adele. Mm-hmm. And you secretly learned the chords. And I remember after one of the first rehearsals for Boom Shaka, you were wearing your oversized jean jacket and your skinny jeans that were rolled up showing Texas socks underneath with your vans. You had your hair in a ponytail. Classic. Classic. (laughs) And you started playing the chords and you sang it to me. And it was a song that we had always like sang together, but you learned the chords and you were singing it to me. I don't sing for a lot of people. You don't sing for a lot of people, but you did for me. And it was very, very romantic. And... No matter what, you're definitely my favorite person to sing with. Thanks for listening, and a special thanks to Dr. Solomon, Emily, Allegra, and all who contributed to the episode. And from all of us at Nine Lives, we wish you a very happy Valentine's Day. To stay in the loop about the podcast, follow us on Instagram at Nine Lives Podcast. If you have a story you'd like to tell, shoot us an email or message us on Facebook. Remember, all cats have nine lives. Share one of yours. So there's this statistic that says the rate of inter-wildcat marriage, so like Northwestern alums that marry another Northwestern alum, is less than 1%, which is pretty low. Do you think that number checks out? Honestly, I don't blame them. I wouldn't want to date one of these motherfuckers.